0: Please turn with me in the Lord's Word to Paul's introductory greeting to his letter to the church at Ephesus. If you're like me, as I think you've heard me say before, those portions of Scripture where you think there's the least is where so often there's the most. We tend to sort of skim over opening and closing salutations in the New Testament letters. I think that's because we're unaware of the fact that unlike the way we greet one another, hello or goodbye, how are you, see you later, Paul always presents his greetings in a way that feeds you. There's something more than a mere greeting there, by virtue of this being the Holy Spirit-inspired word of the true and living God. And as is always the case with Paul, very simply, he teaches you more about who God is and who you are before that God. Many of the things that we've already spoken of and sung about thus far in this service. And I suggest to you that this greeting proves particularly apropos for a day that we would gather around the Lord's table because we will find that it stresses the unity that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We call this a communion table because we have in common, the glorious reality that we have been made to obtain a common blessing. This is why Paul exhorts the church at Corinth to examine themselves and to discern the body. That is, think and see if there be any outstanding or unrepentant sin, of which you are yet to confess, if there's any inkling of strife or contention between you and another, and to rid yourself of that. It gives you the opportunity to see if there is anything between you and the Lord, and between you and the Lord's, so that by His grace we might partake in a manner that would bring Him honor and glory, that would showcase that unity that we have in Him. So let's now read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and have a look. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you again for gathering us here in this place on this day, to worship you. What a privilege it is. and We are grateful and we are expectant as we hear your word and as we participate in that great sermon without words, your sacrament, your supper. We pray that you would visit us and be gracious to us and aid us Help us to press on and to live for your glory, confident in the blessings and the favor that are ours in Christ Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Several years ago, I remember watching, as I'm sure many of you have, one of the Today Show anniversary programs. The Today Show, NBC's morning news program, is one of the longest running in the history of of television. And when they reach these milestone markers, 25, 30, 35, 40 years, uh, they still to this day, even being, what, over 65 years old now, having begun in the early 50s, They have these retrospectives where all of the alumni, as they refer to them as, come back, the former hosts and special guests, and they reminisce and they talk about special events that they all covered. And I remember one in the early 90s in which then host Bryant Gumbel was having a chat with the former host, Hugh Downs, who, by the way, is still with us at 97, which is remarkable. Hugh Downs had hosted the show in the 60s, and they're having this pleasant exchange. And at the end of that, Bryant Gumbel says to him, I think, uh, seeking to honor him in a way, you're always welcome here, as if to say to him, uh, come back any time. That was a remark that he was conveying as the current host, vested with the authority, as it were, that comes with that and the privileges, saying that to a former host as one who had a long association with the show and was beloved by viewers and had contributed much to NBC News. He's saying that to him, and in so doing, he is recognizing that they have a common bond, that they are bound together by this special program, very rare in the history of television, And he says that based upon his purview as the current host to a former host who had had a relationship established in the past. And that really is what Paul is beginning to do as he greets the Ephesians. He's coming in the authority of an apostle, and he's saying to those who have a special relationship with the Christ he preaches... At some point in the past, individuals who make up this church had been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and they form a particular body of the Lord Jesus Christ in a particular place. They have a past, and Paul is currently speaking about that past and saying, you are Christ's. There is a great association here, and we share that bond And therefore, the things that I am about to tell you in this letter that I'm writing, you're welcome to them. They're yours. It is appropriate for you to receive them. The objective realities of the Gospel in the first three chapters, and then the latter three chapters, how it is that we respond in right to such grace shed abroad in our hearts and our lives. And how appropriate that is as we come to the Lord's table. Paul giving some of the main ingredients for unity and commonality of purpose and identity as he indicates things about who he is, about who his recipients are, and highlights what all believers have in common because of what God has done, and gives us a picture of the grounds of precisely why it is we are welcome at this what I think can appropriately be paralleled to an anniversary celebration. Have you ever thought about this? But the Lord's Supper is the only thing that we do perpetually that remains exactly the same. Even the preaching of the Word varies from week to week. Our Bible studies change. Our Sunday school lessons are different. We're only baptized once. But we come regularly to this Supper and the the elements never change. The means of grace is never altered. The words of institution are, are always the same. And it's, it's special in that way when you think of it and how it is that Christ has worked to make us welcome here. Paul loves this congregation at Ephesus, as you know. He spent somewhere between two and a half and three Years there. We don't know exactly how long, we just know that his time there began in AD 54 and ended as he moved on in AD 57. He spent more time there than he had with any of the other uh, churches to which he wrote and invested more in terms of their leadership, and appropriately so, because it was a very strategic location. Ephesus was a metropolis that connected the east and the west of the Roman province of Asia, and it was much like Los Angeles. I read this past week that there were upwards of 200 what we might call suburbs or bedroom communities around Ephesus. I think of of L.A. and Orange County as being jam-packed. You go out of one corporation right into the next, and you really can't tell the difference except for the sign on the side of the road. But this was a central location, a place where it was all happening, as we might say. And Paul loved it, had a burden for it, and had a burden for truth being understood there as a pivotal location. He's passionate about this church and its potential for the kingdom. And there are three things that I'd like for us to glean principally from this brief but packed introductory greeting. First of all, We look in verse 1a at Paul's apostleship and its basis. Paul's apostleship and its basis. Paul, as always, begins by showing us his credentials or the authority by which he comes. And I like the fact that here, as he greets the Ephesians, he uses the term will, referring to the will of God. Now, that's consistently the case, but in all of his epistles, he doesn't always use that terminology. Sometimes he, he speaks of being an apostle of Jesus Christ, or one who is there by um, the divine appointment in uh, some particular language. There are various ways in which he says as A bond servant of Jesus is sometimes what he says. But in five of the 13 letters that he writes, he uses by the will of God, here in both Corinthian letters, in Colossians, and in 2 Timothy. And I like that because it accentuates something that he has in common with those to whom he's writing. Not that they're apostles also, but rather that they are believers, and they are believers on the same basis... And that reality of their being believers has the same foundation as does his apostleship. When he writes that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, he's saying, I am one chosen by Christ to be used of him in the beginning of the Christian church, in its growth and in its building up. And I am so because of the sovereign choice of my God. And no other reason. He wills it. And it's interesting as you begin to study the letters of Paul. And you see the various themes that are in each. Those developments of the topics he addresses. Begin to shed more light on precisely why it is he greeted them the way he did. And so it's not surprising then that in a letter in which he would show us. How salvation is all of God in Christ and none of us how it is that we should live before Him, it's appropriate that He would start off identifying Himself as one who has apostolic authority and serves Christ in this way per the will of God. Per or by the sovereign, immovable, unchangeable, eternal decree of God. The will of God. He's going to begin to develop many things for them. And he's shown them at the beginning his pedigree, uh, not only in terms of the fact itself. He doesn't want them to merely know that he is an apostle. They already know that, actually, but how it is that he is an apostle and why it is that he is an apostle. And it's because of the sovereign appointment of God. And just as he is an apostle, a messenger of truth because God has willed it, the things that he will tell the Ephesian Christians are so because God has willed it. Now we see this concurrence, I think, even in the expressions of Paul's conversion of the report of the details surrounding it. For example, in in Acts chapter 9, you'll recall that he's dramatically and powerfully changed en route to Damascus, and he's blind, and he's told to get up and to go on into Damascus, And the Lord directs one named Ananias to meet him there. Now, Ananias is a bit sheepish about this, given Paul's past, but the Lord commands him to go on. And what does he say in chapter 15 of Acts 9? He says, Go, for he is chosen as a vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. See, right there after he's converted, God with immediacy comes and says, I've saved him and this is why. There's a special place. So for Paul, he can never remember a time when he was, as a converted man, not designated to be an apostle. The will of God for him to be an apostle and the will of God for him to be a saved man are, in their essence, the same. The same God who has called him and willed him apostolically is the same God who willed that he be called effectually. So you see, Paul is not trying to prop himself up in emphasizing his apostleship and look down upon the Ephesian Christians. No, in that apostolic authority, he's making every effort to underscore what he has in common with them. He even, it says there in the Lord's words in Acts. For I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. There's a particular purpose, and there's going to be suffering. And Paul knew, as well as anyone, how it is that suffering was the vehicle for sanctification. But not only so, in those sufferings, God was with him because he has given himself to Paul as his Savior and as the one who has called him to be a leader in the early church as an apostle. And in setting this relationship, he has also established that it is his will that he suffer and he will know God's presence in that suffering. This is what enabled him to sing hymns after having been flogged in the Philippian jail with Silas. He's the one who is able to do so precisely because he knows that the Lord has given himself to him, and that is his main possession. He told the church at Philippi in Philippians 3 8. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, he continues in verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And so Paul is doing a 180, moving in a different direction with a different purpose put upon him by the will of God. And there's no disassociation of the will of God from suffering precisely because he knows that what he gains is Christ. And this is God's purpose for him. So the will of God for Paul is always associated to the totality of who God is being granted to him. And thereby, he can relish and revel in the fact that he is a joint heir with Christ, in suffering, that they may be glorified together, as he says in Romans 8, 17. Oh, that's the commonality. And I think uh, this is expressed beautifully in a journal entry by John Wesley. John Wesley, one time in the 18th century, at the height of his ministrations, he recorded this in his personal journey. Today I visited one who was ill in bed. She had buried seven of her family in six months and had just heard that her beloved husband was cast away at sea. I asked her, don't you fret at any of these things? She answered me with a loving smile on her pale cheeks and said, Oh no, how can I fret at anything which is the will of God? Let Him take all besides. He has given me Himself. And I have learned to love and praise Him every moment. This is the Pauline perspective on the will of God at its core as he speaks of it here. And what he begins with is how it is that he comes to the Ephesians in ministry through this epistle. He's bringing with him all that God is because he has given himself to Paul both savingly and apostolically in his purpose. So he has that in common with them. Greetings, Ephesian Christians. I come to you as an apostle by the will of God, and the basis for that is the same basis that we share in salvation. He wants to emphasize the change and the transition. And so the basis for his apostleship is, is the basis for their and our salvation. God's will, His sovereign, gracious, covenantal choice. But secondly, I want us to note in verse 1b, Paul's recipients and their identity. Paul's recipients and their identity. There are several things in the balance of verse 1 that teach us a lot about ourselves as Christians. First of all, the term saints. Hagios, or here, Hagioi, the reference of saint is one that is very special and often employed by Paul, and actually today, one of the most misunderstood. We live in a time in which people venerate individuals for their contribution to good works in their lives while they are living, and when they go, they are assessed and assigned a kind of sainthood. So a saint in modern cultures is a term that refers to those who have received some type of credit or station or are extolled because of what they did that was great. And that could not be farther from a biblical definition of a saint. A saint actually is one of the most basic terms and in a strange sense emphasizes what we have in common that is the most basic. It doesn't have anything to do with our works at all. It is merely a reference to having been given a a common position before God in Christ because of nothing we've done and because of everything that God has done in us through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very basic reference. And Paul uses it because it's appropriate. He's writing to this church in Ephesus, and there are saints of long standing there, believers who are older. There are new Christians, and so he employs this term that covers all of them. You've been a Christian for 25 years, you're a saint. If you've been a Christian for five minutes, you're a saint. Set apart, designated and consecrated for a saving work in which you will be conformed more and more to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's akin to a word that we find used in the Old Testament the Hebrew, lequadash, which means to consecrate. And it's the, the term, interestingly, that we find in uh, Exodus chapter 40, I think particularly of verse 11 there, where the Lord is giving instructions with regard to how the tabernacle is to be set up. And He says, consecrate, or set aside many things, but in verse 11 He emphasizes the laver, or the basin, in which... Uh, Aaron and Moses were to wash their hands and feet before they, they came in uh, to, to minister and to, to serve the people to prepare for God's visitation. And you know that he followed his people a uh, cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God is there and, and the lampstand, not just the, the basin, but the lampstand and the screen and everything had to be consecrated had to be set aside and made holy. And that wasn't done because there was anything holy in or about them. It was for God's purposes that God was going to attend His people and God was going to work mightily the faithfulness of His covenant promises to them. And this is merely the preparation. And that's what sainthood is. It's the designation of a saved sinner to be transformed, to be changed to have sin die more and more and righteousness live more and more throughout the process of sanctification. They're set apart for His purposes, and that's the essence of it. We're not saints because of anything we've done, but we've been set apart and slated graciously to receive the blessings of God because He has decreed it. And His purpose is to attend to you As he dwells with you as his own and to work in you that which is well pleasing in his sight. But then we move on from that to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful, or literally full of faith. This is not talking about the degree to which they've been obedient again. It simply means those possessing genuine and saving faith. We know, and we've studied it as Reformed believers. The old definition of true faith consisting of knowledge, assent, and trust. You know that quite well. Uh, more than one Reformed scholar certainly has dealt with that. But we have, to, we have to know the facts, we have to agree with them, and then we have to rest in them. And these are the components of saving faith. I wanted to take a moment though and share with you something that I've discovered recently in working through the works of a Puritan known as David Clarkson. Uh, He's not as familiar to some of you. He's not as well known, but his works do uh, exist in a four-volume set that has been published. Most of it, I think, is transcribed sermons, but I've been reading through David Clarkson in the first volume and dealing with matters such as uh, faith in general, and he has a marvelous development that I'd never come across of knowledge, assent, and trust. He, of course, ministered in the 17th century and was among the ministers in England who were ejected in the great ejection or the act of... um, uniformity that had been passed and those who didn't want to comply with it in the early 1660s were thrown out of the church after Charles II had been reinstated. And so they had plenty of time to deal and to with and develop some of the other matters of the faith that perhaps they had not addressed. And Clarkson says this, now if faith be so necessary and belief so dangerous, it concerns us to know what it is to believe. I love what he says. He calls ignorance the nurse of unbelief. That's he's beginning to deal with the matter of knowledge. Ignorance is the nurse of unbelief, and it is Satan's muffler. How true that is. And we see it in our day. And he describes the knowledge requisite for faith in terms of coming out of darkness into light. He writes, the first step to conversion is to open the eyes, to scatter darkness... The Lord begins the new creation in the same way He did the creation of the world. Let there be light. The first thing He does is produce light. There is a dawning of the day before the day star arises. Some light goes out before the sun rises. Such a dawning of knowledge there is before the sun of righteousness arises, before Christ dwells in the heart by faith. Some light from the law discovering sin and misery, some light from the gospel discovering Christ's excellency and all sufficiency. And there is a competent knowledge of the mysteries of the gospel, a knowledge more distinct, more convincing, more affecting than that which he had in the state of unbelief. Isn't that beautiful? That knowledge that is a major component necessarily. But then Clarkson goes on to define assent as concurrence and agreement with especially two truths. First, that one has a necessity of the Savior. And secondly, that Christ is the only all-sufficient Savior of those who recognize that they need a Savior. He writes, There is an absolute necessity of a Savior which the Scriptures declare upon three grounds. The sinfulness of a natural man his misery, and his inability to free himself from it. So he's sinful, he's miserable, and he's in an impotent state. I like that term misery. You ever use that when you evangelize? You're trying to convince someone they're a sinner and they need a Savior. Talk to them sometime about their misery and see if that doesn't change anything for them. Because they are whether they know it or not and maybe God can use you to open their eyes to the reality that they are suffering they are lacking contentment and it's all because of their failure to see that they're sinful and need a savior and then there's recumbance that's actually the term he uses for trust recumbance an old english term that refers to lying down upon or uh, laying the soul upon in reliance. It's a great, great language. He says it's to rely upon Christ alone for salvation. That is saving faith. It is not to believe Him, but to believe on Him. It is not to give Him credit, but to rely on Him. It is to trust Him, and to trust Him is more than to believe Him. It is to assent to His Word as true. This is the essence, the formality of saving faith. And this is profound here. There cannot be justifying faith without knowledge and assent. But there may be knowledge and assent without justifying faith. These are, that is referring uh, to the, the first two, the body of the faith. And this, re- is, this relying is the soul. Without that, knowledge and assent are but a carcass. So you can have the first two and lack the third, but you can't truly possess the third and be lacking in the first two. He brings that together so wonderfully. The devils and hypocrites may have more knowledge and they may have a firm assent, but this act is above their reach and they never attain it. And Paul is writing here and simply saying as he greets them, that as those who are faithful, what they are full of is saving, justifying faith comprised of knowledge, assent, and trust, recumbrance. And then he directs their attention to the reality that all of this is in Christ Jesus. And this is a reference here to that glorious reality of the vital union, as it has been termed over the years, the oneness that is The believers with christ and it's it's vital it's essential it's it's life giving to the saints who are in ephesus and are faithful in jesus christ he's not directing their attention here to christ as the one in whom they have faith though they do though that's true but grammatically here his purposes are as this comes to us to the saints who are in ephesus and who are also in christ jesus and therefore are known as those who are full of faith that's the accurate interpretation of what he's saying here and it's appropriate certainly and a blessing that he would stress each of these their saints their faith and the fact that they have unity with Jesus they are in Christ Jesus we talk about this a lot and there's a great deal as well that has been written on this, this matter of, of vital union and oneness with Christ. And Paul is even going to use that phrase nine times in chapter 1 alone of this great letter. But the term that I often find myself coming back to, and the one that is most vivid in description of union with Christ or our being in Him, is the idea of uh, a graft or ingrafting. You know, the shorter catechism answer on the definition of baptism speaks of our engrafting into Christ and our engagement to be His, which pertains both to believers as well as to their covenant children who are brought into and are irremovably under the blessing of God's teaching, the teaching of the Word and the truth of the Word as their parents rear them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You, you can think about it this way medically. Uh, when someone has a skin cancer, or perhaps has oral surgery, sometimes the one performing it, if they've had to remove tissue, they will take a graft of tissue from another part of the body, and what will they do? Uh, they will suture that, or in some way, with all of the technical, technological advancements today, perhaps via lasers, they will connect that irremovably to the place of the operation so as to protect it and so as to fortify it again with a covering of tissue. And once that graft takes place, it's done. It would require another surgery to remove it, and it would be messy, and it would be extensive. God in Christ takes His own, and He he engrafts them. He he sews them into and on to Christ irremovably. And His work cannot be reversed like the work of man his work is is permanent it's the encontrizo that's the greek word for engrafting and it's found only four times in the new testament all in romans chapter 11 verses 17 19 23 and 24 and it means to take a part or a branch of a tree and to put it into another for an express purpose most of the time in that culture it entailed a reference to a cultivated branch or tree being put into a wild one so as to tame the wild one. What happened, as Paul explains there in Romans chapter 11, is that the opposite was true with the bringing in of the Gentiles uh, into the body of Christ. That there was a case in which a wild branch had been engrafted into a cultivated one to breathe new life and vitality into that cultivated one, Israel, who had rejected her Messiah. That's why he says in Romans 11, uh, 24, uh, that it was contrary to nature what had happened with the Gentiles. Unless they become prideful, he's saying to them, look, I'm going to bring in my Israel, and their engrafting will be natural. It'll be easy. So... If I could bring you in, don't go getting haughty, because I'm going to bring my people back. Irremovably. Irreplaceably. That's the import of what it means to have faith in Christ Jesus. Anyone who is in Him is a part of Him. Jews and Gentiles. There were Jews at Ephesus, and there were Gentiles who had been, as he says in chapter 2, verse 13, brought near by the blood of, of Christ so these are the things that 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 Paul celebrates He's excited about saving faith and the fact that they possess vital union with Christ. That's primary with him. I know you've been seeing this in your study of Colossians in Mike Fleming's Sunday School class, but as again, as you look at all of Paul's letters, you'll notice that he is shot through with thanks, and the thing he's most thankful for is the fact that those to whom his writing have been saved or are being saved, those in that region of the world, and it's getting out, it's being known, it's being talked about in the whole world, as he says in romans one eight and this this thrills him, and so, as he greets them, he gives to them these words when we unpack them, we see that he's he's celebrating, he's overjoyed, he can't wait to talk with them about these things pertaining to the faith and the letter that he writes because they're so. So important. But finally then we have Paul's pronouncement and its substance. Paul's pronouncement and its substance in what we know to be verse two here. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He associates the Father and the Son here as the joint originators of the blessing. And that's important, because any time there is a blessing of God, we need to understand that it comes from all three persons of the Godhead. But he says, grace to you and peace. The very common language words that we employ in tandem still, even to this day, the two principal elements of a blessing, grace and peace. I even find myself on occasion signing a letter Something saying grace and peace. The essence of the Gospel, grace, and the result of the Gospel believed upon, peace. Lack of enmity with God. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The problem is removed because of grace and there's peace. Israel's warfare is accomplished. And her pardon is a reality. Now, this has been consistent throughout the ages. Grace and peace are not New Testament concepts. But whenever God blessed His people, from way back under the Old Covenant, the components principally there were grace and peace. A little while from now, I'm going to employ, in your hearing, pronounce, I should say, a benediction that I have several times here. This is probably the best-known benediction in all of Scripture. I want you to notice how it is here that this ironic blessing foreshadows exactly what Paul's doing here. It's a, it's a before-the-fact development of the essence of grace and peace. What does he say? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. That's grace. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and what? Give you peace. I want us to spend a moment before we come to the table looking at this briefly. Because we find here, defined for us, grace and peace. First of all, if you back up to verse 22 of Numbers 6. This is Numbers 6, 24 through 26 we are looking at the benediction proper, but the Lord says in verse 22, He spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his son saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them. So the first thing we understand when there's a pronouncement of grace and peace is this is not some blind, pious hope that everything's going to be okay. No, the blessing comes per the command of God. Go in there and pronounce this upon my people. That's comforting. And we have grace here and peace here. Grace, part of the blessing, that part of it is connected to a couple of things. First, we have protection. The Lord bless you, and in that He will keep you. God will keep His people in their wanderings for Israel in the desert and for us today in our journeys, wherever they may take us. There is an unending dimension to this. He protected and kept His people then. He protects and keeps His people now. That's the first aspect of the grace of the benediction. The second component of this, of God's graciousness unto His people, is the idea of His face shining upon His people, or literally turning His face upon them. It's language of visitation. He's turned His face away from sin, and now in His pity and His love for His covenant, what's He doing for Israel? He's turning His face back to them. He's visiting them. Zacharias, in Luke chapter 1, spoke of this same thing. In Luke chapter 1, verse 68, John the Baptist's father declares, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. You see, the ultimate expression of grace comes with the advent of Christ, the one whom John the Baptist came to be a forerunner to. The ultimate pronouncement of the Lord blessing you and keeping you and making His face to shine upon you is Jesus. That's why Paul speaks of grace and of peace. John Calvin called the face of God that serene countenance through which we experience that He is the lone and supreme defender of His church. That's His people. Protection. The reality that He has set them up as His own and He visits them. He's with them. The God who is just in turning away is now merciful in turning toward. That's grace. But then the second part of this, the, the peace, he says the Lord lift up, some translations say the light of His countenance. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. Now there's a little bit of a difference here. Countenance we normally think of as the face. But the word we use to translate here, countenance, is actually speaking of something other than the face of God. That's why we use face is the English word in the first part of that as we translate it. But the countenance... Here And the lifting up of it means God is turning to His people, visiting them, and He is offering up everything that He has. He is giving uh, the divine resources in total out of who He is to His people. He comes back to visit them again, and then He raises up and pours out upon them everything good about Him that they need for sustenance. And because He does that, they are at peace with Him. He's giving everything that as is Israel's covenant God, He can bestow upon them for their good and for His glory. So the next time you say grace and peace to somebody, be aware that that's everything that you're really giving them. In Numbers 6, 24 through 26. And so there it is, the basis of his apostleship is the same as the basis for effectual calling and salvation itself. Those saints set apart to have done in them that which pleases God best, those who are possessive of saving faith, those who are at one with Christ Jesus. And by all of these things, what they are due to is grace or what is due to them rightfully because of God's covenant promise is His divine favor and the peace that that brings. That's why the Ephesian Christians and those of us today who believe in Him can have it said of us that, that we're welcome to the things that He teaches in this great letter. Anytime. Because they rightfully belong to us, not for anything we've done, but only because of what the Lord who invites us to this table has done. I often remind saints, when I'm officiating at the table of the Lord, salvation is, by works, just not ours, and this is the time to see that we often forget that in our downplaying of of work salvation we need to look at Jesus' lawful life and His sacrificial death and we need to see the ultimate work so that we may be declared righteous and may be one to Him and may be welcomed because we're part of the group part of the body part of His chosen band that He has sealed with the blood of His own Son. May God humble us and may He fortify us with these realities as we come to the table. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that You would consecrate this time and that You would prepare our hearts that we may know Your favor and that we may understand that You have given us something that we could have never conceived of ourselves because in our blindness, we didn't know that we needed it. But you save us, you set us apart, you use us for specific purposes as you did Paul as an apostle. Encourage us, cause us to be joyful in our hearts because of that reality, and meet us here, we pray, and vouchsafe to us again, grace upon grace, to that end, for Jesus' sake, amen.